Uh, well, good morning, church. Uh, it's a delight to be here. Shelby and I and others from the Cybert Institute are, uh, spend time with uh, churches all across the country. And it's not uncommon for us to encounter curious leaders asking hard questions about the future for their congregations. Uh, they're asking and looking for key strategies and ideas that would make a difference for the life of their congregation. And uh, they're looking for answers for the hard questions they face in their churches. And we believe that that curiosity is a good thing. With the growing decline of congregations, many churches are ignoring the symptoms or simply paralyzed. To ask questions and explore possibilities signals faith and hopefulness. Carson and I, as mentioned earlier in the service, gathered with several cyber colleagues from ACU, and we got to meet in your gym here with over 100 church leaders to ask questions, to grow, to explore together, and we are excited to be with you all this morning. We want to use our time in worship today to offer a path forward for McKnight Crossings. Certainly, our research and our work with congregations give us all kinds of ideas about strategies, ideas, concepts that could be helpful to churches as they navigate the future. However, as the people of God gathered here today in worship, we want to make a move far beyond a list of to-do items. What we want to do is invite you into the world of Scripture that points us to the core of our identity as Christian people. And one of the central claims that Jesus made in his ministry was the ethic of love. As the Gospel of John declares, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Jesus in his ministry made clear the central commands that we are to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourself. So if God loves humankind and he invites us to practice love to him and to love our neighbor, could leaning in to God's love be the place to understand our call as a Christian community? I'm thinking of Dorothy, of the Wizard of Oz. When she discovers that she is in the middle of Munchkinland and she is asking questions, she's looking for answers. And the word comes to her from, you remember Glinda, the good witch? Follow the yellow brick road. Find the path to answers. Maybe today we could find a place that would offer us a pathway to understand God's love and how it might lead us into church renewal and vitality. I think we can. Matthew in his gospel presents a summary of Jesus' work. Jesus teaches, he proclaims, he heals. Matthew is naming Jesus' ministry program. Then Matthew presents a narrative that declares God's love and presence that then leads to several things the disciples are asked to do. Yes, perhaps this is our yellow brick road this morning. Let's hear this text from Matthew chapter 9 and following. What we hear here is Matthew writing to his early church community and inviting them to think about some things. He names, first of all, Jesus, the nature of Jesus' ministry. We're going to hear that Jesus does three things. Jesus teaches, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, and Jesus heals. And he wants his congregation to think about their 
teaching and their proclaiming and the way they demonstrate God's healing. He wants his church to think and reflect about that. And so I'm inviting you to listen as Shelby reads in a moment here, to listen for God's love and how it sets up a response from the disciples to reflect about their ministry. Perhaps we can find some wisdom for us as we make our journey toward faithful congregational life. The word of the Lord from Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Matthew narrates the discussion in the line of thinking about Jesus' ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing. And then he moves on to give us something that's underneath this ministry of Jesus. We hear something here. We hear something that teaches us about Jesus' heart. As he looks upon the crowds, he finds them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus feels for them. Matthew uses the word compassion to express Jesus' emotional state. This emotion of compassion of Jesus is the key. In much of the New Testament, when the phrase to have compassion is used, it's used with Jesus. Jesus and compassion go hand in hand. Like Jesus' mercy, compassion regularly surfaces as an action to meet a need that's evoked from this emotion. Jesus' compassion comes in waves over and over again in his ministry. Jesus reaches out to touch the leper. He consoles the widow who has lost her son. Jesus is driven to feed the hungry, teach the crowds, and wipe away the tears of the bereaved. Mm -hmm. And to delve more deeply into this word compassion, we could simply do a little word study for a moment. Compassion is a compound word that comes from the Latin. The root of the word is passio, which means to suffer with to suffer, and the calm in the front of it gives us that prefix of with, to suffer with another person. Or if we go a little deeper into the language of the Greek, we find more stuff. It gets close up and personal here. To say compassion in Greek begins to describe something that's down deep in our gut. To have compassion is to so identify with another person that you feel it right down deep in your belly. And what we're hearing here is out of Jesus' love and compassion and commitment to other people, within his own body, Jesus feels moved to act. And a common word for us today that expresses some of this love and concern of Jesus is empathy. 
Empathy correlates to relationships, to the other. Several ways to further explain empathy from a relational perspective is to maintain an openness for the other, a priority of recognizing the other, to care for another and to hold value for another, recognizing the other as needing a unique response. Therefore, each encounter with another person demands a unique response, and Jesus exhibits those unique responses over and over again in his ministry. So Jesus is modeling for us this empathy or compassion. But Matthew moves on to use other language that we've heard about to convey the depth of God's love and concern. Remember those words. These folk are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew is naming for us that which is common to all of us, our native human existential experience this sense of loss and loneliness with no guidance, to have no direction, to be unprotected from predators. This, this reality is something that Jesus is responding to. And Jesus isn't content to leave the crowds in this position. In this moment of Matthew's narrative, we see the very heart of God being displayed through Jesus's troubled spirit. God is bent on redeeming and restoring the brokenness in our world. And Matthew is painting a picture of the reality of God's care and God's intent to act. Like the story of, from the Gospel of Luke when Jesus tells the parable about the prodigal son, stating that the son set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. The father saw him, was stirred with such compassion that he didn't wait for the son to arrive. He ran toward him, embraced him, and greeted him. His compassion stirred a response. Compassion is baked right into the way that Matthew tells the gospel story. God's compassion is all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. In the beginning parts of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is given a name. He's given the name Emmanuel. Can you help me out, church? Meaning, God with us. And then we make our way throughout the fullness of the Gospel, and we get to the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew. And you can help me out here. What is it that Jesus says? Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. God is determined to be present in our lives, exercising compassion to make things whole. And what motivates Jesus' concern for the crowds is what lies at the heart of God's mission in the world. God's love for humankind fuels Jesus' work. In our experience at the Cybert Institute and what congregational research suggests, is that thriving churches are congregations that embrace God's love for humankind, allowing that compassion to be the focal point of a congregation's life and mission. Yes, one of the things that we see working with congregations across the country is that churches that have an outward focus to see their neighbor, to see the fields white and to harvest, are more likely to be thriving churches. 
Capturing God's heart, God's love, God's compassion for humankind is the beginning place for thriving communities of faith. Yet longing to be a vibrant community of faith raises questions. How do we capture God's heart? How do we respond to God's love? How do we partner with God in loving the world well? Those are good questions, and I think of others as well, Shelby. What should we do with, to show God's love, and what is our next step in pursuing God's compassion? Our questions raise a strange and surprising answer in Matthew's narrative. Listen again to Jesus' words. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The surprise is that Jesus does not set up a multi-year strategic plan. He doesn't arrange for meetings to review the most recent data or give out book recommendations on evangelism plans. He invites people to pray. Surprising indeed. By naming prayer as the human response to God's presence and action in the world, Jesus is calling us to receive God's love by prayer and allowing God to be the one who does the work. Remember, as Jesus said it, ask the Lord to send out laborers. People need salvation and hope. You and I need salvation and hope. That work is God's work, not our work. And so, how does prayer become practice for us? How does prayer turn our attention away from us and toward God? Prayer acknowledges God is the one who acts, the one who has the ability to do something amid the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Prayer emphasizes faith, a belief that what God has promised, God will do. Prayer postures persons to remain attentive to the ways that God speaks acts and engages in the world. Prayer allows persons to not only remain attentive to God's presence, but to partner with God, who is at work, who is in control, and who loves humankind. And God is able to do immeasurably more than anyone can think or ask. Yes? When I think about this practice of prayer, it reminds me of a story when my children, who are now Shelby's age, when they were little, and we would go to Grandpa's house. And at Grandpa Bailey's house, there was an M&M jar that sat on the kitchen counter. And after every meal at Grandpa and Grandma's house, the M&M jar came out. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner, it did not matter. <laughs> Grandparent rules, right? And Grandpa would invite each of my four children to come and get a handful of M&Ms. Each of the children went at it differently. Leslie, our oldest, would stand there and bashfully look up at her grandfather back and forth and go, one M&M and then look, another M&M and look. My son, William, would just in it go and clench tight and come out with whatever remains. My third daughter, or third child, would use both hands to do that <laughs> as a little half-pint kid. Ah, but Megan, our youngest... She would stand there kind of bashfully, not like, unlike her oldest daughter, Leslie, but she would not reach in. Grandpa would coax. She would wait. She knew something was about to happen. Finally, Grandpa would take his big grandpa hand in and scoop up mountains of M&Ms and drop them overflowing into her open, outstretched hands. Which one of those demonstrate the power and possibility of prayer? 
Megan waited on Grandpa's action. And prayers recognizing the priority of God over ourselves. The work of God before our work. God's leadership and power over anything we can do ourselves. Prayer is a practice that fuels our relationship to God, that positions us to receive what God is offering and to join God, the Lord of the harvest. Congregations today can recognize the plentiful and the few. There is so much to do. There are so many things that we could do. And yet there seems sometimes to be so few people or resources to do the things we think need to be done. Yet knowing the compassion of God, the action step to address these concerns in this decline of times of church attendance or the increase of work that is needed in our secular age is not for us to go out rushing and doing more programs or initiatives or to find more staff people and all the other things. The action step that Jesus is inviting us to is to hold prayer meetings. And from our text this morning, we witness what flows from prayer and paying attention to God. Jesus acts. And the next verse in 10 verse 1 says, And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority. Jesus is summoning and acting. God is making the first move. And as God makes that move and invites us into God's mission and relationship God, uh, with God, God's first move is to empower us, to give us gifts in order that we can powerfully and partner with him in the work that God is doing. Listen again, God, listening to the text, our text states that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out, to cure diseases and sickness. Further on, we'll read in the text about the authority that was given to them to proclaim the good news. Jesus is giving to the disciples the very thing they need for the task that is in front of them. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Give us this day, help me out church, give us this day our daily bread. God gives to you and I that which we need for today. Many churches, as we work with them across the country, get all anxious I call it the ringing hand syndrome. I wish that we had $100,000 so we could do this, that, or the other. Or I wish that we had more young adults so we could do this, that, or the other. All the while, the possibility is that Jesus is providing what is necessary for today. And then Jesus offers an invitation. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, they have witnessed what Jesus is doing. They have been astonished at what they've seen, yet Jesus has been the leader. And now Jesus is inviting the disciples to do the very same things he has done. Not only to do them, but to do them without him present. The summoning of the disciples may seem normal to us as readers. They were Jesus' followers after all. They have work to do, of course. The text even outlines what it is they're supposed to do through the remainder of the teaching of Jesus' instructions on into 10, chapter 10. But while we hear this as a list of tasks or a set of expectations, especially when we're hearing such things for the first time, our initial reaction may be, ah, intimidation, or how in the world am I going to do this just the right way? And yet, Maybe there's something else here at work. Shelby, you've been in a lot of new situations over the past few years. What have you learned about this? 
I'm still learning about it. But before COVID, I was able to go on a mission trip to serve students in Croatia. And during our pre-trip planning and training, the group leaders offered us an invitation that would change the trajectory of my trip. They said, we need you to show up as yourself. You all have various giftings and personalities and experiences. I realized that I couldn't imitate my team members because I wasn't them. I had to be myself. I had to show up and use the gifts that God had given me. I had to use the personality that was most authentic to me. If I believed that God had acted in and through me, which he had, I had to release my comparisons and live into the ways that God wanted me, uniquely as I am, to offer love to those students. If I was going to partner with God in participation over those next few weeks, it hinged on me acknowledging the gifts that God had given me for the sake of the work that was before me. God gives each one of us gifts. This is foundation, foundational to the teaching of the New Testament. And as God gives gifts to you individually and to this community, this congregation, then God is providing the resources for what is next for you. And the marvelous thing in all of this, as we think about our gifts and the way they get used, is that we're not doing those gifts as autonomous beings out there. God brings us together in community. We're not alone. We walk with each other. We walk with God. And as we partner with God, we're enjoying the blessing of God's continued presence. In my last ministry role before I started grad school full-time, I oversaw the logistics of a Sunday morning service, the many moving parts. But when I would walk into the church building every morning, I would say to myself, I can't do this alone. It signaled to me that I would need others, greeters, ushers, communion servers, parking lot attendants. It was easy in my personality to want to move forward alone, to be in control, to not have anyone relying on me, not answering anyone's questions, and having no fear of disappointing others. And yet, getting to partner with others every single Sunday allowed volunteers to use the gifts that God had given them. It also helped me see that people on mission together is valuable far beyond the task themselves. Matthew doesn't say it explicitly, but in the Gospel of Mark on this telling, he makes it quite clear. Jesus does not send these folks out by themselves willy-nilly. He sends them out two by two. It's interesting, isn't it? We, we need each other. And in our need for each other, for community, we find the power and wonder of what God models for us in God's self. What God models in the Trinity is the significance of relationships. The wonderful mystery that one God is three in one. God is in an eternal relationship with God's self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect harmony, carrying out God's life and mission. And God, the God who is one and three, invites us to live in harmony with others as we journey with others and partner together in God's mission. An invitation is one thing, but accepting an invitation is another. People are so different, complex, even complicated. How can a church live out such a community? People today are so divided and possess so many different opinions. You're right, Shelby. 
And even in these early days of the story of these disciples, we see this diversity playing itself out. James and John, the sons of thunder, I bet they were a real joy to be with. Or what about this notable example buried in this about Simon the Zealot? Ooh, this guy is a terrorist. He's a part of a terrorist organization armed to the teeth to take out Rome. And then sitting next to him is Matthew the tax collector who gets his paycheck from, guess what, the government of Rome. How could these two people with such extreme backgrounds live and work together? The best answer is that this diverse group, Simon and Matthew, brothers James and John, along with the other apostles, had embraced God's mission. They had experienced God's love. As we talked about a few moments ago, God was breaking into their world quite literally through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, and God was calling all kinds of people to partner in God's mission in the world. And the differences that they held maintained little priority in light of God's compassion. And perhaps these early disciples, as they discovered God's love was first and foremost, then began to find the ways in which their differences actually became strengths when rendered to God's mission. And the mission of the 12 that we read about in chapter 10 is only one of many which point to the mission of God for the sake of the world. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see the establishment of churches, the forming of communities that serve the world by witnessing God's action to those around them. The church is a mean by, means by which God acts for the sake of the world. Yes, the church is the way that God demonstrates God's compassion for the world. As we go deeper and deeper into chapter 10 of Matthew, the instructions that Jesus had for the disciples their direct directives are there, and they were called to carry out that mission in community. And while the precise ways that McKnight Road carries out the life and way of Jesus may be different than what's found in Matthew 10, the reality is that you're being invited to teach and form community uh, disciples, teaching, to proclaim the kingdom, the arrival of God in our world, and be witnesses of God's healing. And the ways in which you're invited to do that are still bound up in this same reality of what we're seeing in this text. You are God's means of propelling God's mission right here, right now, in this place. God's compassion and love are being declared through a community of people in this great city. Yet the beginning place is not the work or some program. The beginning place is sitting with the amazing reality that Jesus came and continues to come, God with us. Jesus comes among us with compassion, with unconditional love and embrace. Your call out of that is to practice prayer, being attentive to God's voice. And as you attend to God's voice through prayer, God will summon you to use the gifts that God provides. You already have the resources needed for today. And in your praying and in the use of your gifts, you're listening and doing together as a community embodying the love of God for the sake of the world. When Dorothy set out on that yellow brick road, she had many adventures and met some partners along the way. She needed the intellect of the scarecrow 
the emotional strength of the tin man, and the courage of the lion. And as McKnight Crossings continues on her journey, brains, heart, and courage will be needed as well. We know that you desire to be a church where Jesus' teaching forms disciples, where the proclaiming of the good news of God's arrival, the kingdom, is heard, and where people are finding the healing of God for the broken places of their lives. Yet the place where it begins, the beginning of the yellow brick road, is nothing less than God's love, God's compassion for you, for me, and for the world. And that's our message for you today. And that message is not somewhere over the rainbow. It's right here. It's right now. It's in this place. It's always present for us and through us because God is here. And today we invite you to receive the compassion of Jesus in the person that we know as God with us, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. 